Welcome. You are listening to Conversations from Christchurch Cranbrook. We are a faith community located in Metro Detroit who have been transformed by God's acceptance, love, and grace. Whoever you are, wherever you find yourself on the journey of faith today, we pray this podcast will feed your soul and inspire your spirit. And uh, Bishop, we are so uh, blessed to have you with us. Thank you so much for making yourself available. We know that you have a lot of pastoral duties, typically on Sunday. And we also know that this has been, um, this is an incredibly um, uh, critical time in, uh, in, our, in our lives as a church uh, in Metro Detroit, but um, which is an area where you have you know, your roots, but also in the, in the country as a whole. Um, and uh, you and I have had wonderful conversations in the past, and I'm so grateful that you're going to take some time to share your thoughts with us, uh, which, we, which we are really eager to hear and to discuss. Um, so without further ado, I'll turn it over to you, and we'll go for 30 to 40 minutes, however long you want to go, and then we'll ask... Um, uh, Michael and John to offer some some responses because we they've been pre, uh, presenters from the from our previous meetings and uh, we look forward to, to seeing what you have to say. Okay, great. Quiet in the Dolbach. Greetings, friends. I offer thanks for and recognition of the Abiki people, the people of the dawn. Vermont's indigenous people. It is they who are the traditional stewards of the unceded land where I live and work and from where I greet you. Thank you also, Bill, for your invitation um, to add my voice to the conversation around renewing the work of reconciliation. Hmm, I've used that word so many times in the church and sermons and conversations and, you know, Reconciliation is supposed to be the restoration of friendly relations. And I'm all for the concept of reconciliation as relates to humanity's relationship with God. I often speak of this as our work as a church, but recently, since the traumatic events of the pandemic, and after hearing a lecture by Mark Charles about the doctrine of discovery and racial trauma, I've hesitated to use that word, reconciliation. I feel the need to be precise. As a black woman, as a faith leader, I don't have the experience of going about restoring something that was once whole. So I prefer to talk about conciliation, the act of resolving differences between two groups, which in legal terms uh, usually involves a mediator who is usually, but I love this part, but not necessarily impartial. As a Bishop of Vermont, I realize that I'm doing and leading both reconciliation and conciliation. And so I'm gonna do a little bit of storytelling here. I knew a lot about Vermont before I came, but I was ignorant to a part of our history um, that had I known, I probably would not have felt called here. When I read the profile about Vermont, I had no doubt that I was called here. And then I did lots of research. I knew that Vermont is the second widest state in our nation. 
And even though Vermont was the first state to abolish adult slavery, more of the state's African-American male population is in prison than on the street. I learned about the eugenics project sponsored through the University of Vermont in the 30s, which targeted the Abenaki people. And right before I came here for the discernment treat, so, retreat, so in 2019, in March of 2019, but in J January of 2019, Kaya Morris, the only Black representative in the state legislature, had recently resigned her position because of harassment from a white nationalist. I knew also before I came that all the clergy are white except for only one woman priest who is a Beniki. And after scouring all of the websites of the congregations, I found that there were several congregations with anti-racism groups that meet regularly. Nobody was looking, no black people around, not, not one in sight, but they were meeting to talk about issues um, amongst themselves. I also knew that the ninth Bishop of Vermont, Mary Adelia McLeod, was the first woman diocesan Bishop in the Episcopal Church. And my predecessor, Tom Ely, worked with others to advocate for marriage equality. Vermont became the fourth state to legalize uh, same-sex marriage, and it was the first one to do so by legislation instead of a court ruling. Uh, and then the people. Well, of course, in the beauty of the land, but as I interacted with the people of my diocese, I learned more about them and their ministries. And for some reason, and it's something that I, I still can't quite describe, um, but for some reason, when I was with them, I felt more like myself than I ever have in the church. There was an ease and confidence I'd never, ever experienced before. Our mutual concern for conservation and creation care, exploring what it means to be church in an unchurched state, interest in new models of ministry and a commitment to social justice and racial justice made sense for us. And so I was elected on the first ballot. Clearly, we were certain that God called us to share ministry in this time and in this place. And with my election, I became the first Black woman bishop of Vermont, the first Black woman diocesan in New England. And there were only four other Black women diocesan bishops. And now my friend, who is bishop-elect of Chicago, Paula Clark, will be the sixth Black woman diocesan bishop. And since there are so few Black, Indigenous, and people of color in our congregations, when I arrived in July of 2019, while I intended to pay attention to the work of rec racial reconciliation, I had absolutely no intention of it being a priority. But after I arrived in a passing conversation, in fact, sitting in my living room, uh, someone mentioned the first Bishop of Vermont who was consecrated in 1832. And they assumed that I knew about John Henry Hopkins and so in 1861, John Henry Hopkins wrote the Bible view of slavery in which he criticized abolitionists and declared that there was no scriptural basis for ending slavery. I tell you, I, I was um, 
<laughs> I was taken aback. And he's buried in my uh, backyard, by the way. Um, but anyway, I, I was shocked to hear that. that. And then, you know, after he wrote that in 1861, <laughs> then he was so impressed with his um, knowledge that he agreed to an expanded version, which was published in 1864. And that uh, publication is called A Scriptural Ecclesiastical and Historical View of Slavery from the Days of the Patriarch Abraham to the 19th Century. And that publication included his argument from the biblical case for slavery, along with the critique of his friend, of his peers. You know, and I have to say that I knew of Hopkins, but I guess I didn't even want to give him a name uh, because I had talked about him before in other lectures about how the church's work of reconciliation is tainted by the presiding bishop who kept the church together because he was willing to stay in relationship and listen to the bishops who condoned slavery from the slave owning states. Hopkins was a presiding bishop in 1865. And I should clarify that presiding bishops were not elected. Somebody died, so it was just his turn. You know, it was about seniority. 1865 um, was also the year the 13th Amendment, uh, Amendment abolished slavery. 1865 is the year that the Ku Klux Klan was formed by veterans of the Confederate Army. And Hopkins was intimately involved with establishing and designing the landscape of the University of the South, Sewanee, as a learning institution for Southern landowners. And to this day, the university is owned by 28 Southern Episcopal dioceses. And Hopkins used the money he earned in doing his work there to establish a learning institution in the Diocese of Vermont. Hopkins' name is on several important buildings in our diocese, including um, on our school, Rock Point School, which is, um, I could walk there. It's about five minutes walk from my home. So as I began to ask questions about Hopkins, I was told that, you know, he was ahead of his time because he established a school which was um, intended to be for girls. And there's this lovely chapel in, in the school, and there are only images of women in the stained glass windows. And one person also told me that Hopkins was a man of his time. When I, you know, said, but I was having a problem with him, clearly. But anyway, I was told, you know, he was a man of his time. So his ideas about slavery have to be viewed differently from how we think about slavery. And of course, I thought that abolitionists were also men of his time. In fact, Hopkins and Absalom Jones were both ordained by the same bishop, William White. And Jones had been a, a priest for 20 years before Hopkins was ordained. There were Episcopa Episcopalians, black and white, who were certainly people of their time, of that same time, and they did not agree with Hopkins' ideas and bringing it to Michigan. The first black parish of the diocese there was established in 1845, St. Matthews in Detroit. And you know that congregation was at the mercy of a presiding bishop who didn't care that 
when the Fugitive Slave Act um, was initiated, you know, that congregation was a growing congregation and they had to stop worshiping and go into hiding. So when Hopkins and his detractors were having conversations across difference, Black Episcopalians, as you can imagine, were not part of the conversation. And instead of acknowledging deep division over the issue of slavery, Hopkins worked to keep the church together. When other denominations split, our church reconciled and choices and compromises were made at the expense of black lives. So my friends, this is part of my problem with the word reconciliation. Too often when the church talks about reconciliation, the majority of people having these conversa conversations are white men or others who are not impacted physically or emotionally by the consideration of compromise or conversations across difference. And when we are included, we're actually being asked to accept that our human dignity is conditional, that it's based on the comfort or approval of others. The Black, Indigenous, and people of color community, the LGBTQ community, are individuals whom the church has been complicit in sacrificing on the altar of reconciliation. We're expected to carry the burden, to overlook the trauma we sustain from voices and views that don't value us for the sake of being the big tent of the Episcopal Church. And when the church calls itself working at reconciliation, we have to realize that when we make unholy alliances at the expense of others, there will be long-term consequences. When we uphold false equivalency saying that all sides have validity, we do serious damage to individuals and communities. When the church doesn't do the work of reconciliation and conciliation that Jesus modeled, we can expect consequences. Just think of the current events we've heard about at Sawani. When the church doesn't do her work, we shouldn't be surprised that the first black chancellor of the University of the South has experienced racial harassment and been threatened. Students there also greeted an opposing lacrosse team with racial, racial, racial slurs. So you see the seeds for yesterday's tragic news were sown when Hopkins opposed abolitionists and entertained the validity of people's rights to own slaves and sanctioned it by rooting his authority to make such claims in the sacred texts of our faith. And I should also add, those seeds were watered and flourished when people who opposed Hopkins remained in relationship with him and in the church. So this is also now my personal take. The work required to live through this pandemic has absolutely changed me. The racial unrest of this summer combined with making choices to lead the people of my diocese to have as our primary ministry, keeping the most vulnerable people in our community safe was exhausting. I became keenly aware of the energy it took to deal with microaggressions and 
and innocent yet hurtful racial assumptions and comments. I'm a mother, a wife, a sister, and a daughter, a friend. Got lots of roles. And I have to tell you, I no longer have the energy or the will to coddle white fragility or innocence. And I don't say that with malice. I say that from the standpoint of wanting to have real relationships with people. This summer, members in my diocese also expressed their desire to focus on dismantling racism and white supremacy. After George Floyd was murdered, Episcopal congregations across the diocese began holding silent vigils and conversations about how to publicly state their support of Black Lives Matter. I didn't ask them to do it. <laughs> they did it. They just, they came up with the idea. And in fact, after I made a statement, um, um, well, I won't go into what the statement was, but I made a statement that then was in the news and um, you know, people in my diocese said, you know, Bishop, we need to do something and we need to have this as our priority. So following that, we formed the Diocese of Vermont um, Anti-Racism Action Group. And then during Advent, we led a study of a scriptural, ecclesiastical, and historical view of slavery from the days of the patriarch Abraham to the 19th century. I had no idea of what to expect when we planned this study, but on our first uh, day <laughs> in, in Advent, and it ended after Christmas, it made sense to me that while people are thinking about buying gifts for people that we would study buying and selling people. But on our first uh, day gathering together, 80 units uh, logged into Zoom. And when I say 80 units, there were you know groups of people, you know families, couples that were also logged in to learn about this part of our diocesan history. The English teacher from our school developed the study questions and each session began with and ended um, with prayer from me. And I decided early on as we were planning that I could not lead the discussions. And it was just absolutely beautiful and organic in the way that, you know, how we led the study, how it unfolded. And I knew that when groups attempt to take on such an endeavor, the discussion leaders usually have extensive training. And we didn't have that, but we weren't willing to wait for perfection. We had people instead who owned their lack of expertise and who also modeled how to go deeper. In fact, they stated that, you know, as they were leading, they said, you know, we're not experts, but this is important work that we're committed to and the discomfort of not knowing everything and also uh, the subject matter. And so each session included an, int an introduction to anti-racism work, which helped people to stay engaged with and lean into the discomfort that was sure to be experienced. It, I mean, it's just maybe an understatement for me to say it was painful. We all wanted to look away from Hopkins' evil writing. I remember, um, you know, my husband and, and he's white and he also read and he just maybe two or three sessions and he says, I don't know if I can do this. It's terrible. And, and I overheard him talking to, to his uh, breakout group 
about um, <laughs> about how when he would walk our dog, Detroit, a little tiny chihuahua who loves me, um, he walks a dog. And so when he takes him out there in the back, Detroit really loves relieving himself on Hopkins' grave, which, you know, I didn't tell him to do that. But I thought that was my only satisfaction from having read the book and also spending time with people in my diocese. And I tell you, personally, I struggled with that reading. Um, it disturbed my spirit that every Thursday when we gathered was a really, really hard day. And as I read, I was sick to my stomach. It pained me to realize how the legacy of compromise had, has caused trauma to me, my community, and to the whole church. I was also struck by how many longtime Vermonters had no idea about Hopkins. And they were ashamed that they didn't know. Because we're taught to, to try to see both sides of issues, people were conflicted about how to make sense of his writings. They felt like they were supposed to, to listen to what he had to say, um, you know, and to actually value it. And one person was so conditioned to giving credence to learned people in power, they decided that Hopkins was right about the Bible and that since we know better, we can condemn slavery without turning to scripture or our faith. Even when I, with the authority of a bishop of this church, a person with multiple degrees, even when I explain that if we look at the teachings and ministry of Jesus, there's no case for slavery, this person continues to dismiss my assertion. Well, we completed our study of Hopkins writing after the insurrection at the nation's uh, capital. People made the connections between the unfinished and compromised work of reconciliation of the church. And since the last election, there have been renewed calls for the church to take up reconciliation with a concentrated focus. And I have to say, you know, I've been sus suspect of those who are ready to move past these difficult months by launching into trying to understand or make room for views that ultimately call into question the basic rights of people. During our study period, I also spent some time delving into my family tree. My third great-grandfather was in a militia. He was a slave owner who sold his son and his son's mother when he was a little boy of about six years of age. There are not two sides to the ways in which this evil can be justified. Throughout our study, I made a choice to personalize the impact of what it means to entertain the validity of Hopkins' argument and our church's desire to give equal credence to unreconcilable positions. If the church is going to do the work of reconciliation, we have to recognize that we must start with conciliation. And as I mentioned before, conciliation is often arrived at through the work of a mediator who isn't necessarily objective. And Jesus is our mediator. He wasn't objective. Jesus took sides. 
As we work at reconciliation and conciliation, we must root ourselves in our holy texts and, the, and in the teachings of Jesus. Never once did Hopkins refer to what Jesus said when he made his case for slavery. And I'm not calling for all of us to be biblical scholars, but for us, reconciliation and conciliation begins with some basic biblical knowledge. We can begin where Jesus began his ministry in the fourth chapter of Luke, when he quoted the 61st chapter of Isaiah. And Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We have to relearn our history as a church and as our nation. Mark Charles, who I mentioned earlier, is an indigenous pastor and faith leader and an activist. And he says that the church needs to repent for the doctrine of slavery, which was a series of papal bulls giving God's blessing to Europeans, claiming lands and encourage the enslavement of peoples found in those places who were considered subhuman. So we have to engage in some truth telling. Part of the work of reconciliation the church needs to take up is helping individuals to interrogate what is broken within each of us. We need to facilitate the inner work of calling ourselves to accountability for the ways in which our actions and beliefs are not in keeping with Jesus's discerning proclamation. There is something profoundly dysfunctional about asking me or anyone else to be in relationship with those whose actions, views, and energy intentionally or unintentionally go toward our harm. I cannot and will not participate in creating a false peace that fractures my being. As I consider the participation of slavery in my own existence, I don't know how I could forgive the slaver who contributed to my DNA. There must have been something broken in him to commit such violence and to participate in such an evil institution. I don't need to understand or justify the depravity of my white ancestors. I'm allowing Jesus, my mediator, to repair that breach. As I've lived through Corona Tide, witnessing the many ways that the systems of our society are not broken, <laughs> but that they are built on a white body supremacist foundation and this election cycle, I'm excruciatingly aware of how much work it takes to process what it means to be a black woman in this world. And I have work to do in this church and I can only do so much. One of the tasks I've given up is carrying the apparatus of comfort for others. I'm committed to speaking the truth in love, to setting boundaries that allow for self-care and time for reflection. As an act of healing and resistance, right now, I'm committed to the, to the reconciliation of myself with myself. And I'm also inviting others to do the same. 
Thank you, Bishop. That was really beautiful and um, so honest and wonderful. And uh, I'm, I'm uh, grateful for your transparency and I'm grateful for your candor. Um, I'm gonna turn it to Michael and then to John and then we'll start to move into some questions that have arisen. Thank you so much, Bishop Shannon. Um, powerful, uh, elegant, um, indeed truth telling. Um, I just want to just quickly divide what I'm going to say in three different sections um, and just put these on the table for discussion, uh, not necessarily for for you to answer now, but just a grist for the mill for, for the community to think about. Um, first, the dichotomy between conciliation and reconciliation. It, it reminds me of um, when Nelson Mandela was first elected president in South Africa. Um, the previous president, F.W. de Klerk, I wanted a reconciliation commission and um, Nelson Mandela wanted a truth commission. And thanks to the wisdom of uh, Mandela, as well as the people around him, um, specifically Desmond Tutu, he did choose for a truth and reconciliation commission. Um, I think you've put your finger on the problem around reconciliation. Usually those in power want it. And those who are historically the victims of that power have a hard time actually understanding it as reconciliation in the first place. So your study of uh, the case study of Bishop uh, Hopkins but more importantly, your autobiography um, is a powerful way to illustrate um, this problem around reconciliation and the dichotomy that you put, that you put on the table of conciliation um, as a black woman and, and reconciliation in your calling to be a bishop for reconciliation. So I'll just put that on the table for us, that you have really elegantly put the clarity and consciousness to the problem of reconciliation. In the time that I've been having here with um, Christchurch, um, I've tried to articulate that only God forgives sin. And when we use the term forgive, it's a theological term and it always has to have as an object sin. So the understanding of what we do as human beings, I think, is to participate in what God is doing. And that leads me to your second point. Um, your point about Bishop Hopkins being articulated by those in power as a man of his time. It seems to me that this um, understanding doesn't understand how um, it's really about God's time. And um, to put this on the table for you, because I know uh, this is also abused um, in terms of how those in power can, can use the same language I'm using about God's time. 
but Jesus was constantly discipling us to live into God's time, not uh, a social Darwinian time. Jesus was constantly discipling us to live into God's time, not a social Darwinian time. And I, I hold up an example that I think is one that is juxtaposed um, to your wonderful case study and read and understanding of Bishop Hopkins. And that is a white British bishop named John Colenso. Here is a man of his time, but what he did in South Africa was incredible. His, his understanding enculturation, his understanding the need for translation and so on, ended in him being excommunicated as a bishop. Mm -hmm. And it was because of John Colenso that we have um, the Lambeth Conference. It's because they called this guy back into the principal's office back in London to excommunicate him because of what he was doing with black people, that we have a Lambeth Conference. So I just hold that up as, as an example of how being discipled into God's time can actually transcend the particularities that we live in today of race, culture, um, hegemonic identities, and so on. And then the last thing I just put on the table is your epiphany during our pandemic. Um, the wonderful way that you put it of in, in the midst of such a tragedy of a pandemic, no one has the, the leisure, the capacity, the patience to coddle others, especially white fragility and to be the, the um, translator for that because the whole paradigm has to be changed. And it reminds me of Jesus in the temple and your um, wisdom and language of black bodies. Um, you know, we understand the body as the temple and Jesus, uh, uh, this is probably not a good theological way to put it, but it seemed lost his patience <laughs> with what was going on in the temple. And so, so that, that whole paradigm of what was being seen as the temple has to be the whole paradigm has to change. And, and, and that's the, the wonderful insight that I gained from your remarks and wisdom and narrative. I, I'm going to stop there or I'm going to talk too, too much. And I John. want to turn it back before we go to John, I just because I want to make sure that um, Bishop has her chance to respond because that was such a full, um, a full uh, response and a, and a beautiful response. And just be honest with you, Michael, I will never, Jesus lost his patience. That is that, that actually I think is the most theological. Don't quote me, reading. don't quote me that, on that. that, that I, actually, I think that I'll, I will okay. never again read that piece <laughs> of scripture, a passage of scripture again without that. I think that's brilliant. Uh, uh, so Bishop, please. Uh, you know, I, I just, one of the things that I often ask myself when I first got here, it's like, I can't believe it. And what am I doing here, really? I mean, once I got here, <laughs> and then once we got into the pandemic, I realized, you know, why? And 
you know, and there's something about just this sense of being really fully who I am. And, and this is one of the first time I've had a couple of times in the last um, couple of weeks just to begin to process, you know, what, what we've lived through and are still living through. And um, earlier on, when I started to talk more freely about these things with my people, I don't know, it was in some meeting and I, I said something that wasn't guarded and, um, and someone said, oh, Bishop, we're so glad that you feel comfortable <laughs> to, 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 to say these things to us. And I said, I'm, it's not about comfortable, it's I'm too tired. I can't afford to wear a mask to protect you anymore. I used to wear a mask to protect you, protect you from feeling uncomfortable about these things, but I can't anymore. And I love you too much also now to continue to let you stay in that place. So we're all just gonna have to be uncomfortable and it's just gonna all be out there. So, I mean, but, so I've had some time to, I'm not done. And so you all are getting like a really rough version of my processing of all of this. Um, so I'm, you know, really glad to be in this conversation and that's enough for now. Do you know, the one thing I want to add to this that I think is really key at this point, <clears throat> just to, is to, because Michael knows that I spent many, many years traveling to South Africa and I've studied that, that context. Um, the, the example of Bishop Colenso is so interesting because um, it was, he was the cause because what he did is he, he translated the Book of Common Prayer and the scriptures into Zulu. To do that, he did historical critical methodologies, which were considered just, you know, witchcraft, to be frank, um, of the time. And, and, and it created a, a crisis of authority. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why they convened the Lambeth Conference, was to kind of discipline Colenso. Now, who is it that raises money from his former vestry to go to England to be part of the Lambeth Conference, but Bishop Hopkins. Yeah, you know. Bishop <laughs> Hopkins gives the opening sermon of the Lambeth Conference. He receives a doctorate uh, uh, from Oxford University. And so what occurs to me, just to add to your um, question, is that in a sense, the Anglican Church had a choice in the 19th century over different ways to see itself. And it chose the vision of Bishop Hopkins over the vision of Bishop Colenso. And, and that's such an interesting pivotal exchange. So the, con the conversation between you two is so powerful to me right now. And I just wanted to lift that up. I'm, I know that John probably would have mentioned this, but I just wanted to make sure that that got surfaced as well because you do see different ways of performing whiteness uh, yeah. uh, in that moment. And, and, uh, and that's an interesting question to, to bear. Let's go to John. Sure, thank you. I mean, Colenso is a really interesting person. I think I'm right that Colenso commended, or not commended, that's not quite necessarily quite the right word, but, um, but maybe it is the right word, polygamy, as part of his cultural um, uh, adaptation, yeah. which is a really interesting thing. I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying that it's wrong, but it's just yeah. a really interesting um, 
example of what happens when you try to bring the tradition together with the local culture and then work because, out what to do. Because the women were so vulnerable. And that was one of the kind of, yeah. Um, yeah, so, so just a fascinating thing, really. Um, so thank you, Bishop Shannon. Um, and of course, it's never comfortable listening as a white, British, elderly, heterosexual Christian to, to, to kind of address it like that, um, just to kind of put it out there. And I feel like my last year or two has been, has had quite a lot of that, both around faith and, and much around arts groups. And uh, people usually look at me without a shred of sympathy when I say that and say, well, welcome to our world sucker kind of thing, really. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, um, so just to kind of say that, and so lots to lots to reflect on in that. I think the question, just to in, just to kind of take things as as they came to me as you were speaking, I think the the use of the word conciliation as opposed to reconciliation, I think, is really striking and really interesting. And I've been trying to work out whether we can get to the same kind of place by by using what what is often part of our diet of, of our conversation about the, the importance of, putting, of, of the relationship of justice to reconciliation. Um, I think for me, one of the reasons why I sometimes use reconciliation is not so much about trying to get back to a time of perfect relationships, almost in this present age. It's a question of whether fundamentally we think that um, that being in right relationship is our natural state or not our natural state. And that almost goes back to whether you think that people are naturally sinful and kind of basically horrible, or whether you think that actually people are essentially good. And the kind of Simone Veil thing, which is if people sin and get it wrong, it's, it's almost because of... Um, it's not quite letting people off the hook by saying you kind of go back to something in their past. But I think that... Uh, slightly in the same way, I'm not sure this is helpful, that Muslims will talk about reversion rather than conversion because they believe that the natural state of humanity is to be in right relationship with God. And so I don't know whether that's helpful or not, but it was a kind of train of thought that I was kind of exploring when I was thinking about the, the, the question about reconciliation and conciliation. Um, that's really not, I, th I, hope, I hope this isn't inappropriate to say, I don't think it's fundamental to the, the, this incredibly important thing, which I think you expressed by saying, too often people are sacrificed on the altar of reconciliation. And that's such an incredibly important point. There was a, um, the Church Times is a, is a church, of, is a periodical associated with a church in, in, in Britain. Um, and in the middle of last year, I think partly in relation to the Black Lives Matter um, debates and controversies, and actually partly in, in relation to some of the other um, issues that were coming up in relation to the pandemic, and the inability of the church to speak out, or the, the, or the, the lack of the church speaking out. It says far too, too often, the ch in cases of conflict, the church dives for the foxholes of reconciliation. And, I've, and I, that is a phrase that has stuck with me, and I see it in our own cathedral here. Actually, the example I usually get is in, in our, our repeated failure to speak out about the Israel-Palestine situation, where in order to try and retain relationship across that extremely difficult um, situation, I understand, 
we fail also to speak out. And I think, uh, I think, gosh, uh, in a number of situations, are we are we diving for the foxholes of reconciliation? Um, I I really enjoyed you talking about um, uh, just to move on. I I really enjoyed you speaking about sacred texts. I find sacred texts unbelievably difficult. Uh, you know, because it's my it's my responsibility as a dean to read the lectionary readings every day. Um, you know, to my horror, just recently, I've been really struggling with John's Gospel. I've been, you know, for years, John's Gospel has been one of my kind of safe go-to points. I think, you know, I, there's so many other bits I find really difficult, but at least John's Gospel is okay. Um, and then just recently, I just seem to have come across bits where I think there's kind of division sown, certainly through the way these texts have been used in ways that I find quite difficult. There is abusive, discriminatory behaviour throughout scripture, um, if I can be really bold, done both by God and in the name of God. And some of the ways that we, that parenting is presented, um, you know, we've just been reading Hosea again, I have torn you, I have kicked you so that you will learn to love me. And I think, my gosh, what has been done through that? I'm going to pull myself back from that because, um, I, yeah, just to be really brief, I was out on a walk yesterday um, talking about my difficulty with these texts slightly too loudly with my wife. I suddenly realised, that, and, I, and she said, well, this is really important, you need to be really honest about this. And I said, well, actually, I have a job, which means it's quite difficult for me to be completely honest about this. And I suddenly became aware the person in front of us was obviously listening backwards to my conversation. And I thought, oh, we're in trouble here. So I thought, so I then, I then started to ramp it up. And I said, the thing is, being a bishop, which obviously I'm not, it's really hard to do these things. And then my wife said, yeah, I know. And we really like living in Lambeth, don't we? So, um, so uh, I don't know what those poor people on that walk around Kenilworth Castle thought was going on. Um, but I think that we, we do have work to do around our sacred texts. And last thing for me to say um, is this difficulty of how to be with people with whom you profoundly disagree. So in your case with, with Bishop Hopkins, it's a person who you know, died many years ago. Um, in the UK or in the, in the Church of England, we developed this rather shocking thing about the two integrities in our church relating to whether people believe that women should be ordained or not which is horrendously difficult, I think. And, and I, in a way, have to be in relationship with people who believe things which I believe to be profoundly wrong and discriminatory and unjust and damaging. And I simply say I struggle with that and quite frequently I think why do I have to pretend that we are okay about this and then sometimes I think so maybe there are good things to be drawn from this somewhere if I dig really deep so I'm not sure what to say about that except that it seems to me that's an example for me here and now of, of just not being sure how to handle that particular challenge so thank you so much and um, sorry for no, and again, I, I want to turn it to you, Bishop, and I might add a couple of things after you speak. Yeah, you know, the thing about scripture that, <laughs> oh, that's a funny one. For, I'll take that second. Um, you know, 
we've been doing this um you know i'm from the from the midwest and um in the united states and so that's people are supposed to be super nice there you know we have this mid nice midwest nice and you know just don't want to ruffle much feathers and i just keep asking reminding people okay so this sort of being nice about how we <laughs> go about this and trying to maintain a level of comfort where has that gotten us we're still stuck and then we look up and realize oh my gosh it's worse than we thought um so there's there's no i mean i don't have an answer about that <laughs> um but i do know that when it comes to you know i'm really big on embodiment and so when it comes to people and 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 things that we say about god and about how we are as a church we have to see it for one thing you know actually has to be an actual people so we can't say that we believe that god loves everyone and that um all people are equally valuable when the only leadership we see looks a particular way that has to be backed up by real people um and then with scripture you know <laughs> and talk about real people um i just had to be really honest about scripture that is that you know that butts up against each other that's contradictory to what we think or what we understand or how we um talk about god or jesus and to own that it doesn't feel quite right and what is it and there's these these things that cause us to say well wait a minute that's exactly what we're supposed to do <laughs> is to say wait a minute to investigate a little further to dig a little deeper and you know i've had this conversation with some i almost hate to say it with some people in my diocese well um we don't want to hear can we just stay away from you know the old testament because it's too mm. like no that's what jesus read that 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 was that's that's jesus's bible if we get rid of the old testament we got to get rid of jesus okay we're not doing that and then when jesus says hard things hear the hard things you know we can't decide that we're not going to listen to the hard things Jesus isn't, you know, <laughs> that's why I love when he tore up the temple. I bet you he cussed. I bet, you know, don't quote me, but I bet. I know I would have. Um, <laughs> so in, in some ways, and then that highlights, you know, just being people. Um, so we have to just, you know, that Christianity for so many people and following Jesus is has become a thing of comfort and not necessarily um a challenge and you know this is not that's not what we're not what we're into following jesus is hard work and will make you um ask questions about all kinds of things and it's not gonna solve all of those things and that's what i think people look for there is some comfort but it's not all about comfort. It's funny, and just to add just a bit, if it's okay, Bishop, I, um, I, I think the key here for us is to keep in mind that the, the word incarnate um, always creates an interpretive crisis with the word declared. 
right? You cannot read the New Testament without seeing the crisis that Jesus himself, as the Word incarnate, creates with the Hebrew Bible interpretation, with, with the passages themselves. And that, and that now includes the New Testament as well. And um, I first became aware of this years ago when I was celebrating uh, Eucharist and reading from the Gospel of John, and a member of my congregation was ethnically and proudly Jewish who became Christian. And I just, when I was reading the Gospel of John, and I kept on saying everything about the Jews, and I looked up at Stanley, and I just started to, I just started to stutter during it. And then I just, I don't even remember my homily. I was like, I'm just so embarrassed. And so finally I said to, I said, Stanley, I'm so sorry. Uh, I just, I just got a hesitant. I just, I just, I, I looked at you and I was reading it and I just, I, I felt awful. And he said to me, may you always feel such discomfort. Mm -hmm. And that was it. That was the, and, and there was such grace in that moment, right? Because it was also like almost rabbinical in its economy. Um, and it's part of what I think we have to do with our scriptures now, uh, particularly for things that the scriptures are incredibly patient about, that they should not be patient about. Um, I, the, the other question I had, I want to ask a question of you, Bishop. One of, the, one of the critical race theorists that taught me the most was Beverly Daniel Tatum, who speaks about the different processes through which um, white people and people of color go through when they have encounters with each other. And, um, and I have always found that so incredibly important um, just to understand where my feelings are as a white person when I hear this. And I, I don't, and there's also, she also has a kind of, um, they have, she has five stages of racial identity development as well. Um, and I was thinking about that in relation to your concept of conciliation. Uh, I'm wondering if shifting to conciliation from reconciliation begins with difference and acknowledges that each of us, as we make our way forward, is going to be going through some different journeys of identity formation. Um, and, and I'm just wondering what you, what you know, because I've always found her to be incredibly helpful to just understand my own feelings and just to give it from a white perspective because most of us here are white is there's a moment when you are confronted with say the history of Hopkins that you experience disintegration and dissociation and you want to say that's not me or you want to minimize or you want to um what is my favorite you negotiate like one of the things you'll see that white people will do is they'll say it, it'll happen, they'll start to bargain. Well, you had Obama, right? <laughs> this kind of thing. And, and then there's gonna be, then it goes through a period of kind of a, uh, where there's nothing to be said. And then there's kind of reintegration of, and, and actually acknowledgement of, of, of who you are. And it's called, she calls it autonomy, where you understand your, your whiteness in relationship to a world that's much larger than your racial identity, um, I'm wondering is is that a helpful way? I mean, I, I'm I didn't I don't I'm I'm not entirely comfortable to summarize her psychological process for um, for for uh, African Americans, 
um, I'm happy to try to if it if it helps. But I, I it seems like that kind of acknowledgement of difference is going to be really important right now. It is, and you know, I think part of you know, like when the church does, you know, what we do, <laughs> and I think back to some of the anti-racism training that I've led, and 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 the you know what I've been taught and teaching it, and we we try to to present a thing for everybody, and then you know now the church is realizing, huh, maybe we need some different things and so there's sacred ground and, and and within my own diocese where um there's i don't know there's maybe 10 black episcopalians and i think i'm overestimating and i brought some myself um imported a couple and uh so you know people want to you know they talk about oh well we need to have conversations and, and where are some black people we can talk to some some indigenous people that we, look stop looking for talk to yourselves you have to um and as we did this study and i i don't know um when i was coming here to vermont it was after um several years of in my doctoral studies i um focused on womanist theory and um appreciative inquiry and and see my ministry of otherness as part of how i'm called to be in this church the, the hard part of that is that i spend a lot of my time letting my life teach others and sometimes i'm too tired for that and it's you know it's gotten it's it's a weighty thing to agree to um, but once I said, okay, this feeling of being different and um, and all of that is part of how I'm supposed to be in this church. Once I accepted that, I, I you know, it's like, oh, okay, I feel better about it. And so um, coming here then, when there's really, oh my goodness, Indiana was something. But then here, um, I, I underestimated how much work it would take to just process being just me and then being in the pandemic and then really like i you know i got to see black people or people of color on a screen you know or in facetime and so some of the things that people want to hear from me like i when i said i could not lead the discussions in our book study I meant it because it was just too personal, too much. And so white people in my diocese and my um, canon to the ordinary for transition ministries is the Abenaki priest here. And she's had lots of training in, in like racism work. So she and another priest would talk about <laughs> This is some of what you all are going to feel in your whiteness. <laughs> so here's some techniques yeah. so that you don't shut down and, um, you know, sort of like spoiler alerts, you're going to feel terrible. <laughs> you're going to want to throw the book away. You're going to be ashamed. You're, I mean, all these things. And this is this is what I do. I mean, just actual just really basic things to help people um decide to get past the shame 
and to actually allow that to move you because shame is actually, you know, you feel it a little bit. All of these emotions that we get are a gift from God so that we can learn about ourselves and how to be who we're supposed to be in, in the world. And I do, you know, so when that's why I haven't completely thrown out reconciliation, because I do think um, that we are made for God and that, they, that we are good you know that's that's how god intended and that that exists that ability exists in us and so how to to fix that and that's why i've been you know recently talking about you know reconciling with self um and i don't want to throw that word out but it's wait i mean it i don't know i can't tell you <laughs> bill danaher how to deal with your whiteness but you do have to and do it with other people and, and and don't give up because it is a separate sort of work than it is for someone like myself or Michael. And even, you know, in our different places, we'll each have our own things, but we can't expect that it's going to be identical. Yeah. And that, that's, that's incredibly helpful. And that's, and I think that's the great insight of what you're saying about conciliation. And, and interestingly enough, maybe conciliation internally is part of what you have to do. You're never going to reconcile yourself to, I'm just going to, just going to throw it out to, to the, to the past that is inside of you. Yeah. Right. And maybe, and maybe that's maybe Christ, maybe Christ is the point of, of conciliation for all of these things. Yeah. And that, our own identity. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. That's why I think that. So for knowing that there is this, you know, goodness about humanity that is supposed to be there and, and getting to that, that um, white people, they need that too. Yeah. <laughs> it, you know, indigenous people, Latino, everybody needs this inner work of figuring out how to, how to be in this thing that we've created or messed up as it were, um, because that possibility is there. And, and I love the idea that, you know, a mediator does not need to be um, impartial yeah. because Jesus is not about these things. And, that, and that's exactly what we need. Well, in, in, just, in just because I find that really profound, uh, which you what I hear you saying in that is uh, oftentimes when people try to talk about reconciliation, and Michael knows more about this than I do, is there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of approaches that came out of Harvard, which is like getting to yes, which actually did help some of the negotiations regarding South Africa. You just had to kind of think about what, what you're, you empathize and you explore and you try to find a meeting ground where there's a win-win, things like that. And, and what you're saying is, is, is that that is not helpful to just try to find the win-win. That's not, that's not conciliation as what Jesus is doing. Because you, 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 in order to get to win-win, often you have to try to take an impartial standpoint. But in fact, um, from the from the position that you're articulating, where there's an interested position um, that is that is not without empathy, that is not that is not impartial, that is focused on justice. That's where you step into the the true work, from my perspective, of reconciliation that Jesus does. Mm -hmm. um, and in it, in it, so it, it requires us to think differently 
about all of these divisions because in some ways a lot of the uh the racial justice that has been done through the laws has been articulated within the the, the implicit thing behind it is finding a way to a win-win and and there really isn't going to be a way to get to a win-win and that's the hard thing that's the hard work um i want to move to these incredible questions you all have been so wonderful and i i um i hope uh, it's been okay for us to have this conversation to date. Um, I'm going to be curating some of these. Um, Alyssa uh, Joyce Downs and Susie Bai um, both um, note um, uh, the work of, of, of reconciliation, for lack of a better word, or conciliation, let's just go with that today, with uh, Native American people. And I do put on a link there just so you have um, a connection for anybody who wants to know of the Anishinaabe uh, uh, tribe, uh, the, the the nation, uh, which was separated into actually different nations is a better way to say that, um, uh, uh, that that uh, that occupied Michigan uh, before us. Uh, so um, uh, how do we, you know, that's something that we don't spend a lot of time on. Coming out of the Canadian context, it was kind of second nature for me to begin by thanking uh, the the original holders of the of the of the land. Um, and, um, and I'm really, uh, she would like to maybe hear you speak a little bit more about that work. Thank you for that question. So um, we have a farm also, our diocese has a farm, Mission Farm, and it's, um, oh, what, 180 acres or so? And um, right now, uh, they're working with the Beniki people, and there's a uh, well, several things that we're doing through Mission Farm, um, growing some of the, the Beniki crops so that there's seed distribution. So our our farm is a place of seed distribution, and people can also do um, just general gathering of things because there's you know woods and trails plus a farm there, and. Um, and then also it's a place of learning and sharing information. And at our convention, we adopted a resolution, a land use resolution, so that we can uh, you know, discover you know, how do we come to, to, to own the lands that we are residing on. And so that's some of the work work. But, and then the canons and myself, although we took a break for this month, we're learning the Abeniki language, even though Auburn Watersong is Abeniki, she, I mean, she doesn't know the language of her people. And so we are taking, you know, every once a week, taking classes to learn the language. And I'll be doing that the rest of the time that I'm here, uh, just so that I can have to give actual time to honoring the people that came before. And the thing that's been really fascinating about these classes is that you're, the language is so connected to the culture. Um, it's just, a, it's a very different way of looking at the world and speaking. And so it's been fascinating and, and um, I don't know, a, a great experience. So that's how we're attending to, to that part of it. Beautiful. To be here. 
Beautiful. Thank you so much. I'm going to keep moving through some of these. Um, this is a question by Shirley Green. And um, so if, if, if slavery and racism still exist today, and sadly in the churches, where do we start or go from here? And so um, I think that this may offer an opportunity to speak a little bit more about the, the ways you've invited those conversations from uh, through Advent and through Christmas. And actually we've continued. So right now we're reading um, the 40 day social justice Bible challenge because <laughs> it's like talk about um, having some time to spend with scripture and uh, letting it make you uncomfortable and, and learning um, how to talk about it and how to, to let it have a place beyond Sunday mornings in, in our lives and how we interact with the world. Um, but when <laughs> this is this is work uh, that we you know it's not ever a one-off thing you know we we're offering something every month to people a way to engage with uh, things around race around racism uh, in addition to that land use resolution we're also going to be through our anti-racism action group working with congregations to do um, an audit of you know, how they've approached racism, also um, their interaction with slavery in, in the state. I mean, Vermont was supposed to be <laughs> the first state to outlaw slavery, but you start digging and there's, there's stuff there um, that people haven't necessarily owned. Because when I said that they outlawed slavery, it was adult slavery. So you know, it, it's, it wasn't that simple. So people are working on learning that history because they're tired of, of assuming things and find and, and stumbling upon things that, you know, give them pause and that are embarrassing and shameful. That's really helpful. And I, I think that that audit is a great exercise to engage in, um, you know. That's oh, and I should add, so, you know, now I'm not the only black clergy person in the diocese. Walter Brownridge is now my canon to the ordinary for cultural transformation. And his package of work is beyond being the, the um, just the, in, in charge of all the staff of the diocese, not a whole lot. Um, his work is around creation care um, stewardship and inclusion of, of all kinds. So he's got these things that don't necessarily seem like they're related, but they all are. And they're all about those sort of uncomfortable places um, where we're challenged, uh, you know, with the way that we live in this world. So it's cultural transformation. Well, knowing, knowing Walter as I do so well, uh, if, if Walter will find the connections between all of them and, and we'll see them and there'll be multiple. And, and so what an amazing hire for you. He's, uh, uh, as you know, he and I are deeply close and he preached my installation sermon here. Uh, he's a, he's a wonderful guy. So, uh, uh, good for you and good for the diocese to be, uh, bringing in such an able person. Um, I want to continue to move through this. Um, the 
you know, Katie Allen responded to the question about why acknowledge native lands. And of course, just to say a little bit more about that as we keep moving, um, you know, obviously there are treaties that are still in place in Canada and, um, and those treaties, even though they were contravened and uh, set aside, they still are in effect as it were. And so Canada is coming to terms with a lot of it. And also one of the things to keep in mind is that the, the percentage of people in Canada who are native is much higher. And it's not just people who are on what they call reserves. Uh, there's a huge uh, population of native peoples all through Canada. And so it is, um, uh, it's, it's, it, it is, uh, as it's incredibly important to, for Canadians to, to acknowledge that. Um, I think uh, more could be said about that, but I'm just going to keep moving. Um, I'm going to keep going to a couple of, um, couple of things. Um, the, yeah, this is a really important uh, question that Jessica Weber raises is um, how do you, how do you, uh, press on when a um, what what happens in conversations like this is there tends to be rival truth claims where um, someone speaks their truth and another person speaks the truth that they uh, they understand and there seems to be um, not just um, just come almost like different uh, worlds that they're they're inhabiting how do you um, uh, bridge that and, and, uh, and how do you develop any kind of, of, of meeting or do you? Well, and that's what I mean about there. I hate to say it and people don't want, they don't like it when we say, I mean, there aren't two sides to everything. Um, and some sides are the only side that gets told. And, and a lot of our history and our known history in the United States, because that's you know where I need to locate myself right now. Um, but then it does reach out to others. And that's why I mentioned the doctrine of discovery and even knowing about that and how it's so connected to how the church was formed. It's like, just because you didn't hear it doesn't mean that it's not true. I mean, and I remember this conversation that I had with a parishioner at um, Christchurch Cathedral in Indianapolis. And he wanted to talk to me about something that I had said. And he says, well, you can't say that slaves were mistreated because that would be, you know, who would do that? Because then they'd be misusing their own property and, and then it wouldn't make sense. And I'm like, okay, you know what? I can't argue with you. And, and as you can read, he says, well, I've read things that say that that counter what you're saying. And again, like I was talking about this other person with, you know, it didn't matter what degrees I had, what I'd studied, didn't matter what other people had said, didn't matter what other white people had said. He wanted to believe something that would make him feel more comfortable and that would make him, um, <laughs> I, I don't know. And, it just, it is what it is. And I can't, you know, um, what he believes is absolutely wrong. And I just have to let that be that. And he doesn't, I mean, he should have believed me. He didn't want to believe me. But part of 
you know, a, a broader understanding of our history and, you know, the things that we were taught um, growing up and in our textbooks, people have to, I mean, and I hate to say this, but you have to tell your people. Other white people need to tell other white people, not just me. I mean, part of people shifting to a fuller understanding of our history and, and the implications of that have to come from people um, who mistold the story. I mean, the, the same kind of people who mistold the story in the first place so that people can begin to start to question and wonder, and it's not an immediate thing. Some people will automatically hear that, you know, hear a, a difference, but um, just because people don't believe a fuller understanding of things doesn't mean that it's it, that it's not true. I don't know what else to say about that. No, that's a beautiful and uh, that's a lovely way of looking at it. And um, I think it's and and I appreciate you sharing that that story. Um, and and this kind of brings. I'm going to move through Amy Ryberg's wonderful um, perspective uh, on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict by picking up on that. Um, you know, I. Uh, uh, that particular, I, I had the opportunity uh, to, to go and do a deep dive with uh, both Palestinians and Israelis in 2014, right before I came to Christchurch Cranbrook. And one of the things that became incredibly um, evident about that is that you had two sides that had completely self-contained narratives in which they were the victim of history and not the, and the hero and that the other side was the villain. And what was so interesting about that is, is in this, it goes, um, there, are, there were more people who understood um, Arabic in Israel in 1960 than there is in 2014. So there, there, people are not even speaking the same language to go back to your point. And so those two narratives have been self-contained and are fixed. And, and, and it is locked. And it quite, the, the issue is who is going to tell the better story? Mm. And, um, and um, I, I think that this is, um, and part of the reason why, you know, I think the Israeli-Palestine conflict, um, you know, I, 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 I respect Amy's perspective that we should just hold off until we start to deal with our own. Um, I, I want to suggest that, um, we can learn a lot from other conflicts too, um, because I do think uh, one of the, the things that worries me is um, you see a, a kind of, of, of narrative of victimization and heroism that is emerging here um, that, that is shutting out the, the voice that, that is disruptive or the voice that challenges. And so I think there is a, there's something to be said here about creating uh, a kind of politics of listening and a politics of curiosity, a politics of empathy. Um, because I, it seems like in those moments where you share, that's just a, that's an opportunity that can that um, that can that could change uh, who we how I understand myself as as a white person. Um, and 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 I hope, one of the things we have to do is to, to demonstrate that. Um, I'm going to move through um, 
Chris Harris has an incredible question, um, which is the false piece of don't ask, don't tell kept LGBT folks in the church and of course uh, in the military. Um, and it kept some of us at the table pushing the envelope for change, but also formed some of us into the self-identity of less than. Chris, can you say a little bit more about that? Because it's such a really critical perspective. Well, it was just a, an observation that came to my mind when Bishop Shannon was talking about the role, if there is a role, and I don't know the good, a good answer to this, but what is the role, if any, of the false peace uh, on the road to reconciliation? And it kind of goes to the comment that was just made about, um, about do we need to get to a single shared truth to get on the road to reconciliation? Or, you know, it's, a, it's, messy, it's messy business. It, there's a role for, there was certainly a role for Don't Ask, Don't Tell. It kept people in families. It kept family relationships. It kept people in the church. And I guess the key is, I mean, my, my thought to this, and I'll turn it to the bishop, but uh, the key is to realize along the way that those false pieces, those little negotiations, that's not where we want to end. It's not where we want to stop. We have to keep co constantly calling it out as the halfway broken bit. The best we could do for now, we're, we're not done yet. I mean, if you, if you don't keep saying that, then you run the risk that people can mistake that for the end. Yeah, you know, and, and while I laid out this, uh, you have to start here. Well, you know, it's all, it's messy. The whole thing is messy. That's why I love immersion baptism, which by the way, is what our prayer book calls for. Uh, it lets you know that being a follower of Jesus is messy and, and not to be contained in, in some nice little neat little bowl that doesn't splash all over the place and get people wet. Um, it, you know, don't ask, don't tell. Yeah, I mean, all the stages that we've gone through to get to where we are, which is not where we're supposed to end. Um, it's hard. And one of the things that I don't know, I've noticed because of our family, my, my personal family, um, and how people change hearts, because that's really ultimately what where we want to get. And, and you have to start somewhere. Some of it is, you know, beginning to tell some truths that haven't been told. Some of it is um, laws that people don't necessarily agree with, but then over time you realize, huh, huh most people think this way now. Um, and the other part of it is, you know, when people are related to people that have been part of a left out group, <laughs> then, then hearts do change and people have, you know, are more insistent on, on setting certain boundaries about how they will and won't relate. I, I mean, I think of, so my husband is white, I already mentioned that, and we've had it all in our family. Um, my niece is a lesbian, and I don't know what it was like for her to come out, but um, where they lived was not a place that was, you know, really diverse or had all kinds of um, ideas about things, but completely and accepted in our family, but not the rest of the family, because they're really 
conservative um, evangelicals that don't that that don't accept my niece. And my sister-in-law, Helene, is just, you know, well, that's too bad. This is our, our, our daughter and we love her. And then, you know, now she also has a grandson who's part black and, and me as a sister-in-law. And so these relationships that we've had over these 30 years, um, she's different about things and not to air our family dirty laundry, but <laughs> my nephew, whom I've known before he was even born, who, you know, he just, he loved Aunt Shannon. And he's a police officer um, for many reasons. And part of one of the reasons is because his older sister was murdered and, and um, he wanted to find a way to deal with his hurt over what happened to her. But my nephew, he, he believes that the election wasn't real. He doesn't want to accept Black Lives Matter things and, you know, all of these things. And his mother said, okay, look, you can't come home. You cannot come into our home anymore if these are the beliefs that you hold. And so this is what happens when people really decide that they're going to live into what it means to be anti-racist and and it's been a long progression and lots of experiences that have come into, and I'm telling her story, not mine, I'm part of it, but she just had to say, that's it, we, we, we can't, you know? So these kinds of things breaks, it does break up families and it, you know, people have to decide if we're gonna, you know, if, there's going to be any sort of reconciliation that this part of you that wants to exclude people that I love, I just can't accept it. So um, I don't know if that's really sort of getting at what you're asking, but it, this is, I, it, it is hard and heartbreaking. I'm going to give, um, I mean, that's such an important response because I, I think that what I also see in your response, Bishop, is, and in your whole presentation today, is the need to start to find a new strategic position for you to live, mm -hmm. right? Because I think the don't ask, don't tell, or the grandma pass, or the things that that, that people often do when they're dealing with someone who's not in the same place that they are. That, that that's where you no longer feel called by God to be. Yeah. Um, and, and I, you know, and that's a, and I, and I, and I, it, when, when any, when any of us makes a decision to be someplace regarding that, it's, it always is hard to, to, to like, give legitimacy to the place that we've been right you know and i'm and i'm wondering if you know if there is room for a differentiated strategy um uh that that's that's what i hear in the two perspectives and i'm not i'm not trying to be like the neutral person here i'm truly interested that you know how we find our way you know where we might make a decision I, and i i don't i don't want to you know i just want to i mean 
it, it seems like what I hear, and Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, is that for certain people, that was where they felt most themselves when they were somehow part of the community or part of the family or part of the military and still able to express themselves as, as a soldier, as a child. And then for other people, they had to find their own community, find their own family, make their own way, and, and to wait for things to change. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, I, I don't expect everybody to be <laughs> in the place that I am always, um, but part of, and I think the, the reason why I'm in this, you know, being able to say that, you know, I can't entertain, you know, some of this conversation is because we're talking about people's lives. Yeah physical lives. I mean, this is life and death stuff at this point. And so I can't afford, and as a person in leadership, so as a womanist, you know, which is different than a feminist, yeah. Um, you know, my furthering is about lifting the community that I'm responsible for, along with myself. And so that just happens to be, yeah, white folks too, because <laughs> it's Episcopal church. But I also cannot um, forget that if I'm willing to compromise, I tell other people, you can, you, you don't have to value yourself as much. And you can put yourself into situations where people can harm you. I mean, you can make that choice but think good and hard about it. I mean, there are, you know, when there were things coming up to the insurrection, I told the people in my diocese, we're not gonna go out and do any kind of protest because there are plenty of, um, you know, militia groups and whatever here in Vermont. I mean, I visited a church, what my last outdoor visitation, walking around a neighborhood and there's all these, uh, you know, white supremacist flags and, you know, known people that walk around in the community Kaya Morris lived in that that place where we were visiting. So I didn't feel comfortable. But I, I said to people, I don't owe anybody my body to make their point. Y'all work that out with yourselves. But I'm not in the middle of that. I, 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 <laughs> I'm responsible for some other people. But I don't owe anybody my body. And there are times when I do take chances, but th that, that was not one of them. Um, so, you know, some of it is situational, but I owe it to other people to say, you are valuable. And so I'm not going to compromise with your body. Yeah. And I'm so, I'm so grateful you said that. Cause I, as I was critiquing myself, uh, for what I said is I, I don't want to portray your decision as a matter of personal preference. Cause that would, I think that that diminishes it. Yeah, because it's not personal. <laughs> yeah, because it, it's it's where you feel called by God to stand, and and that's and 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 also from my perspective, the church has too often um, tried to be comprehensive to the point that 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 this this voice doesn't have a position within it, right? And and I think so. I I, I just I really appreciate what you just said. And um, and I and I, I I think I have to leave that as the you know and and and, and you know I, it also occurs to me as much as we can draw from these other um, issues of justice, 
you know, like with Native peoples, like with the LGBTQ community, like with the Israel-Palestine, each, each conflict has its, own, um, has its own contours, its own history, its own genealogy, how, where it came from and why it's going and how, and, and, um, and, and its own work to do. You know, so I do think I, I do think what you're saying is really, really uh, important on this, and 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 so I appreciate it, uh, friends. We have a lot of things. Um, there are a couple of questions I want to lift up. Um, gosh, there's so many. I want to say something, Bill, really yes. quick. Um, so because uh, I also saw somebody's comment about excommunication. Yeah, I saw that one. Yeah, and um, you know, one of the things that I found. When you talk about unchurched state, you know, or people that are really unchurched, okay, you all don't understand. I don't know. Maybe you do, but moving from the Midwest to Vermont, you don't know unchurched. This is unchurched. You know, I, when I talk about, so I don't go around, you know, when I'm talking to people, I don't say, oh, you know, I preach a sermon on Sunday. You know, I gave a speech about the Bible and how we live in the world. I have to explain it, what a sermon is. People don't know even what that is. But I tell you what, as I've interacted with, so I meet with students from Rock Point School and they're, you know, all kinds of things. Yes, it's an Episcopal school, but, you know, the people who teach there are Episcopalians is one maybe, one who's an Episcopalian. Um, and the kids just asked me about whatever. We just have conversations about whatever they want. And they said something, I guess they were asking me about, I think it was LGBTQ issues. And, and, and as I've talked with them and talk about Jesus and talk about my faith, and they don't know Christianity, but when they hear what I talk, I say to them, they're like, oh, wait, <laughs> hey, being a Christian isn't a bad thing. I didn't have to twist their arms to consider Christianity as something valid and good when, because people are waiting to hear about how they're included. People are waiting and wanting us to say, um, they hear the truth about Jesus. And, and my daughter who is, you know, she's, she's got her issues with the church. She said, y'all need to be better gatekeepers. You can't just allow anybody to be to claim Christianity because that's not what it is. And she doesn't call herself a Christian, but she says, these things that I hear, that's not Christianity. <laughs> that's not about Jesus. That stuff that you hear on the news. And y'all need to be more clear about that. You need to tell people about your faith, about Jesus and, and make it, don't just let anybody use your words in your Bible and your things, because it's not real. So, I'm, so there's something to be said about excommunication. Yeah, I think that, that <laughs> and I'm so glad you said that. And, and one of the things, uh, just to clarify, because we have a lot of people who come from the Catholic Church, the burden of excommunication falls on every Episcopal priest. It's not the bishop's uh, prerogative. I mean, she could do it anytime she wants to as well. But it's actually priests who excommunicate, and then, of course, they—if they're smart priests—they would let their bishop know immediately uh, mm -hmm. the the grounds and reasons. Um, but actually, it's an authority that goes down to the to the to the local level. Um, the uh, there's a last question I'll finish with, 
and it was said beautifully by Hunter Torres and Barbara Prinzi, um, which is uh, these uh, Hunter um, uh, asks as a privileged white woman, um, she feels um, she feels a challenge to seek friendship with and deeper understanding of the plight of others who have been and are being oppressed and to work toward equitable inclusion. Um, how, how, what, what is the path forward? What more or other should I be learning and doing? Um, you know, I hate to say, although I, I've decided because of the pandemic, reading stuff is not a bad thing <laughs> and finding people, um, to talk with things about and and I used to say you know find some relationships find a way to be connected to people who don't look like you but that's not always an option like in Vermont where are you going to find black people where are you going to find yeah. I mean it, where are you going to find Latinos or Asians I mean you got to live in a certain place to find these other this difference and I don't think that it that that is just the only way that's part of it you know how do you um, you have to start wondering how is it that you can be so isolated in a place where you don't have interactions with people with some difference, some something different from you. I don't mean difference in a bad way. Um, and then also know that people are not always like don't take it in a bad way if someone is not in a space to, to teach you about something because it depends on the day. I mean, some days I'm willing to teach, some days I'm not. Um, That's such an important thing to say because I, one of the things that I've learned from Beverly Daniel Tatum and others is that many uh, people who are of color uh, feel the pressure to educate all the time. And, and sometimes just to be in relationship requires the kind of um, small gestures of grace and small uh, kindnesses out of which trust is built. Um, that's so beautifully put. Thank you, Bishop. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna finish at this time, just because it, we've been going at this for um, uh, an incredible hour and change. And I want to thank you, Bishop, for your time. Um, I um, I am so um, honored. Uh, that you've been willing to share where you are so um, completely honestly with us. And I, you apologize for your, your remarks not being completely gelled, or I can't remember the word you used. Um, I, I think actually um, the, 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 the way you have spoken today has been, um, has been incredibly powerful, cogent, important. So thank you for, for that. And I also want to thank uh, Michael for uh, his incredible response. And we are going to be um, transcribing these exchanges, editing them down and, and looking for a publisher um, so that we can do that. I Obviously, I'll make sure you get everything before uh, we, we, we send it out with your name on it. Uh, but I just think that Michael, your response was great. And then John, um, you've been such a blessing to be part of these conversations. 
and um, and and also your remarks were incredibly important um, and because it this is um, this is really captured the fullness of what we're about um, uh, in a way that is that is um, in in line with with what Michael did the last couple of weeks and John did early on. This is um, this work of reconciliation uh, has to be um, given a restart and a rethink. Uh, because of, of what has happened. And so we need to go and interrogate every bit of it uh, down to the great uh, down to the very bones. And you've really you've been you've been such a, um, uh, a luminous and um, courageous witness. So we're blessed by you today. Um, we have a final uh, uh, litany that we do. Bishop, um, if, if uh, I'm going to have Michael lead it. Uh, if, if Chris, you can make sure that it gets up on, on it. And then Bishop, I, I don't want you to be second to, to anybody. Uh, so, but Michael's gone through it and we make selections. Would you mind being the people and Michael, would you mind being the, 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 the efficient, uh, just this once. Great. Great. O oh God, make speed to save us. O oh Lord, make haste to help us. Glory to the Glory Father, to the Father and, to the Son, and to the Son, and to the Holy, to the Spirit. Holy Spirit. As it was, as in, the it was beginning, in the beginning, is now, is now and, will be forever. and will be forever. Amen. Amen. You have been gracious to your land, O oh Lord. You have restored the good fortune of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people and blotted out all their sins. Restore us then, O God, our Savior. Let your anger depart from us. Show us your mercy, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what the Lord is saying, for he is speaking peace to his faithful people. And to those who turn their hearts to him. Glory to the Father, and to the, Son, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will, and be, will forever. be forever. Amen. Amen. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And there will be no more night. They need no light, a lamp, or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let us confess to God the sins and shortcomings of the world, its pride, its selfishness, its greed, its evil divisions and hatreds, let us confess our share in what is wrong and our failure to seek and establish the peace which God wills for his children. The hatred which divides nation from nation, race from race, class from class. Father, forgive. The covetous desires of people and nations to possess what is not their own. Father, forgive. 
the greed which exploits the work of human hands and lays waste the earth. Father, forgive. Our envy of the welfare and happiness of others. Father, forgive. Our indifference to the plight of the imprisoned, the homeless, the refugee. Father, forgive. The lust which dishonors the bodies of men, women, and children. Father, forgive. The pride which leads us to trust in ourselves and not in God. Father, forgive. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Amen. Amen. God of unbounded grace, you declare the power of your reconciling love in the death and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Teach us who live only in your forgiveness to forgive one another as we have been forgiven. Heal our divisions and cast out our fears through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Go in peace, mend what is broken, unite what is divided, live the gospel. In the name, in of, the Christ. name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you again, Bishop. Thank you again, Michael. Thank you again, John. Thank you again, so many of you. There was so much wisdom to share in this room today. Uh, we have been, um, we are surrounded in, and you know, I, I, we are, this is the beginning um, uh, for us. So uh, over the past few weeks, we've been thinking about what next steps will look like. And uh, the, the, the group of people gathered here today my hope is that we will walk uh, together as we move into this, these conversations and we equip ourselves better uh, to, to speak the truth and, and, and uh, with love uh, and, and also to work for the reconciliation that is Christ's uh, work in us and through us. So uh, thank you all, have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations at Christchurch Cranbrook. To learn more about our mission, worship services, and learning opportunities, please visit us at ChristchurchCranbrook.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Christchurch Cranbrook. We look forward to you joining us again, and may God bless you now and always.